Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the threat from ISIS. And Richard, these attacks have been sort of coming fast and furious lately. On one of our most recent shows, we were talking about an ISIS attack in Paris. Now since then, this horrible shooting in Southern California, an attack that we know now was definitely inspired by Islamic extremism and there seems to be some uh, operational tie-in there as well, although that's somewhat immaterial to the conversation we're going to have today. Um, I just want to take you through some of the conversations engendered by this latest attack. The first of which is gun control because before we learned that there was a terrorist connection with this one, the initial reports made it seem like the kind of mass shooting that we've seen unfortunately a lot of recently and that immediately set off cries on the left for gun control. And Even now though with this added context, that's still a big part of the argument that you're getting from progressives. So Richard, with that in mind, have we reached a threshold since these things are happening so regularly? where these mass shootings are concerned, where we have to consider gun control measures more seriously than maybe we would have before. Um, I think it's a massive diversion and probably a waste of money. If you were to try to sit down and figure out how much paperwork it would require to track, say, 300 million guns, many of which are going to remain in hostile hands for a good period of time, and all of their subsequent transfers, either by death or by sale or by loan and so forth, it's a nightmare. And what you're doing is you're tracking transfers, 99.99% of which are going to be perfectly legit. Uh, those resources could be better spent doing something else. Um, the second point is that uh, if you look at the mass tragedies, go back as far as Oklahoma City, you know that was done with a fertilizer bomb. If you go to the Boston Marathon, it was done with a pressure cooker bomb and so forth. In some of these mass killings, knives are used as well as or as a substitute for um, uh, handguns. If you want to think a little bit more imaginatively, remember that our two assailants in this case also had armed pipe bombs which didn't go off and other people could start to use that so what this would do is to lead to a substitution from one kind of regular uh, weapon to another. None of that will do the slightest bit of good. And, and I think it's actually a delusion and a fraud to sort of think that gun control can handle it. As I said in my defining idea pieces, what is very clear is that gun control has a serious downside. Um, a gun is a perfectly good weapon for killing a potential terrorist if you can identify that person when they break into a room. And if they're wearing vests and if they're screaming um, all power to Allah, it's not not going to be real difficult to do that. Uh, you don't want every random citizen carrying a gun, but I think the proposal which I've made that every off-duty officer and every off-duty military person carry a weapon with them, I frankly don't much care whether they're concealed or revealed or indeed any mix of the two things. Then in effect, anybody who's going to engage in this stuff, no matter what the modality they're going to use, is going to have to think long and hard that they may find somebody in opposition. And the larger the room that they attack, the more certain it's going to be that they're going to be more than one or two people having a weapon. Now, there's, there's always the risk of some kind of mayhem if you're shooting back, uh, but that's a trivial risk compared to the mayhem which takes place if you don't shoot back and wait for a SWAT team to come fully armed three minutes later after 10, 20, 50, or 100 people are dead. And so I, I think what we really have to do is to recognize that you're not going to stop these kinds of threats. It's not as though if we changed our Middle Eastern policy that somehow or other ISIS would disappear. Uh, they're here for the duration. Uh, they have a 
a territorial base, and so long as they have that base, they will be able to sponsor in one form or another various activities of this particular sort. We have to engage them in this country, meet fire with fire, as it was said, but we also have to be much more aggressive in the way in which we try to stamp out the organization at its home base um, in the middle of Iraq and Syria. And, you know, the kind of policies that we're talking about, running from the serious confrontations in the Middle East using ineffective devices for control of the domestic front is a recipe for more deaths, more property destruction, and more general chaos and mayhem. I, I cannot say strongly enough how misguided I think these programs are, not from a moral point of view. There's nobody here who's in favor of mass murder, but the utter inability to understand the weaknesses of that proposal remedial structure. And the president repeats this all the time, and his performance on these issues can only be described as inexcusably dismal. So before we leave the gun topic behind, let me get you to weigh in on just one sort of subsection of that discussion. There's a proposal that has a lot of traction with Democrats. President Obama has specifically touted it to keep people who are on the no-fly list from being able to purchase a gun. And the president's argument, Democrats' argument is that it's basically common sense. If you can't trust somebody to fly on an airplane, you can't trust them to have a gun. The opponent's argument is that it's basically a denial of due process because people are placed on the no-fly list by essentially executive discretion and it's based on names, not identities. So you can get people who are wrongly on the list just because they happen to share a name with somebody else. Where do you come down on this discussion? I'm of mixed emotions on this. It's the same problem about gun registration. Trying to put one of these programs into place is extraordinarily difficult. I actually think that the inability to fly is a much more serious offense than the or, or incursion on liberty than the ability to own a gun. And I do think that people should have a right to challenge one of these um, determinations before some kind of independent body after going through the government. After all, we give them that right when it comes to the question about credit reports which turn out to be inaccurate so i do think that you know you have to really worry about this the other worry which you didn't mention is that if you go after people on the no fly list what good is it going to do you everybody on the no fly list knows that they're on the no fly list and so if they want to get a gun they'll get it from somebody else um, by way of a transfer payment and in fact if you're trying to figure out how it is that terrorists could communicate with one another all of a sudden you say you know i'm really a bad guy because i'm on the no fly list Please, you've got to collaborate with me. You kind of allow them to sort themselves out in ways which make cooperation easier. So I don't think the issue is all that important. I don't believe that anyone on the no-fly list has ever committed one of these kinds of offenses. And in fact, at least one of maybe both of these people, I think, flew back from Saudi Arabia. They weren't on the no-fly list and nobody stopped it. The real problem about getting information is can you get their parents or their friends to start to say that these people have really caused trouble in one form or another and to get a situation in which what they're willing to do is to report them to federal authorities. And, you know, that did not happen with Farouk, I mean, even though his father knew that he was a crazy man. And the reason he gave for not reporting him is he assured his son he didn't need to do jihad because Israel would be destroyed as a state in several short times anyhow. I mean, if you have people starting to think that that's a reason not to report somebody, uh, then we have a much more fundamental problem here. What nobody can say is whether it's just one person and it's idiosyncratic or whether there is a more systematic sense that since the government is against Muslims, Muslims will not cooperate with the government. I agree with the president when he's trying to elicit their kind of cooperation under these circumstances. And I think that it's absolutely vital that anyone who has any information about a terrorist come forward to an authority and be protected against suit when they do so. Um, But I think the no-fly list is not as 
easier problem as one might think, but even at its high side, I think it will have very little to do with anything in terms of the way things go. Immigration of people into the United States is a problem, but so is conversion of homegrown terrorists. This is a much bigger issue uh, than we're willing to let ourselves deal with. And the truth about the matter is administrative paperwork at the front end, whether it's keeping refugees out or whatever else you're doing, is not going to be as effective as meeting force with force when it actually occurs on the ground. And if we don't put that element into the puzzle, the other things will prove ultimately to be futile. Uh, Levels of resentment in this country are going to rise, and we have a real danger of revanchism of the worst sort. People are saying the kinds of things that Donald Trump would say uh, because they're frustrated with the obvious incompetence of the current administration. Well, let's talk about for a moment what Donald Trump has said. As you mentioned, on immigration after the attacks in Paris, the big argument in the U.S. was over whether we should accept Syrian refugees. Now after this attack, you've got Donald Trump ginning up controversy saying he wouldn't allow any Muslim immigration in the United States. For that matter, wouldn't allow tourism and wouldn't allow American Muslims overseas to come back. Um, obviously, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you think that's overwrought, Richard. But ha- how much of the strategy, if any, here has to turn on keeping people out of the country, and how wide a net should you cast in attempting to do that? Well, I think this is a disastrous strategy. If you want to create resentments, uh, basically impose very serious sanctions on an entire population because of crimes that are committed by some tiny fraction of them. Uh, The danger that we have is not letting people in as such. Um, The danger is that we have to worry about is what happens when they get here. So, I mean, one of the serious complications is suppose the FBI does a perfect background test and finds that 10,000 people are eligible to come into the United States. That figure of course, is a you know maybe one percent or less of the total number of refugees created. I think they're now about ten million refugees, so it's a tiny number. But if those people come in afterwards, they can become radicalized. But that's also true of people like Farouk, who is an American citizen and became. Um, radicalized, and when he married this you know this Pakistani woman, she became radicalized. So it's not just the question of keeping people out. It's keeping tabs on everybody who's here. And this is just an inordinate problem. If you think about 10,000 people as against, say, 6 million Muslims and God knows who else who might fall into this category, because remember, it's not just Muslims who could create terrorists. You get all sorts of other people who can do it. Um, you keep them all out. You may keep one potential terrorist from coming into the United States, which is a very high price to pay, because many of these people you're going to keep out are going to be small children, um, women, who you know have been under desperate situation, repeatedly raped and worse, and you know it becomes almost inhumane to do so. And you know I, I think more people have to start to say about Donald Trump is that he manages more than any other politician that I'm aware of in my entire lifetime to appeal to the basest instincts of the American people. And the man ought to be publicly horsewhipped for the kinds of ways in which his mindless attitude manages to stir up attitude, uh, to stir up resentment. This is a really difficult problem um, that one has to face. And, and, you know, my view about it is that you need to go in and wipe out ISIS at its home base. Uh, once you do that, then you have to go after each of the individual cells. You have to be prepared to use force on the ground here. And, and you cannot sort of get this thing done by sort of saying, well, how do we take refugees in? Knowing, in effect, that what ISIS will now do is simply double down and create more 
refugees going forward. I mean, you know, they've got 10 million refugees floating around the world at this particular point. When will the president, when will the Democrats, when will the Republicans realize uh, that the promise that Obama made in 2008, that he's going to have a responsible withdrawal from Iraq so he could free the money up for spending it on the domestic program, has turned out to be a colossal failure. I mean, I should say that I've been fiercely opposed to the Obama presidency from the day in which it was first announced. And even I, thinking the man was an utter incompetent when it came to these kinds of issues, had no idea at the rate at which things would rapidly turn south once he tried to implement his policies. And what he does is does not have the slightest recognition of the downside. If you listen to his speech, he doesn't mention anything that has gone wrong. Um, he just talks about ultimately curing it. And so you get him on the one side and the foil on the other side is Trump. So you have one man, man, dealing with somebody who's absolutely paralyzed. It cannot be that American foreign policy or domestic policy is determined by two people, neither of which has the slightest idea on how to deal with these issues on a systematic level. Final question that I'll put to you. How about the intelligence component of this, Richard? It was pointed out in the aftermath of these attacks that the authorities had to go back to the phone companies to get uh, phone records of the metadata for these couples because the NSA's authority for collecting it had expired just a few days before the shooting. On the other hand, the critics will say, look, you had this NSA program around for years. It never caught these two. Maybe it wasn't that valuable after all. What, if anything, does this attack tell us about our intelligence needs? Um, it tells you in effect that um, it's extremely difficult to get this kind of information no matter what you do. So, I mean, the critics at that point have an issue. On the other hand, it's so difficult to do the evaluation because we do not know the extent to which the metadata program has actually deterred people from starting into these various activities to begin with. So its effect may have been not in catching particular individuals, but in deterring people to the point where they no longer engage in this conduct. So to give you a, a kind of a simple comparison under uh, these circumstances. You know, you start looking at airlines, we have all the TSA stuff, and all of a sudden we don't see anybody hijacking planes. Well, there are two ways to read it. One is that the program is completely unnecessary because nobody's hijacking a plane, or the other is that the program is totally effective because nobody's able to hijack a plane. And we don't know which of these truths is in fact there. Now, the intelligence people generally seem to be in favor of it, and, you know, I'm always suspicious of government, but I'm even more suspicious of people in government who have no direct knowledge, who are willing to categorically say that everybody who has professional expertise is somehow or other tainted. You look at former people in the NSA, I think they feel the same way. So my view about this situation is I would certainly put the authorization back in. Even the Obama administration in its report of about a year and a half ago wanted to keep the metadata there. Um, and I would certainly go back to that thing and you know I might even go back further. But it, it cannot be essentially that what we do is have the sort of per se judgment that the metadata program hasn't worked and then think that no matter what we do afterwards to tweak it or to improve it or to apply it in other kinds of contexts, that it's always going to be an abject sort of failure. Uh, I'll put it in a slightly different fashion. There is here two kinds of interest you worry about. One is privacy. And in general, frankly, I care very little about the privacy interest in this context. What is it that the government's going to do with metadata? Um, they have to spend an inordinate amount of time looking to somebody to 
to see whether or not um, she in fact has dyed her hair uh, by going to a salon without the knowledge of her husband. And uh, frankly, you know, it's an important issue, but not one that's worth thousands of lives. So I would basically say try to make sure that the data is only used when it's appropriate, but do not ban under any circumstances its collection because of privacy issues. But then there's the effectiveness question. And I don't want politicians going up there and saying, well, it's per se ineffective or per se effective. You need to have a more nuanced study of this thing to figure out where it works and where it doesn't work. And what we should be engaged in is this, you know, ceaseless updating, incremental adjustments and improvements of the programs. And you won't get that if the sort of the world's hero on this issue is a man named Edward Snowden, who essentially probably did a lot more than tell the world about the metadata program. He probably revealed valuable secrets, treasonous to be sure, um, with respect to our, our enemies. I mean, this is a case in which I think that the privacy advocates, whether they be libertarian on the one hand or progressives on the other hand, are overwrought about the nature of the privacy interest and that everybody ought to care much more about the effectiveness issue. And we're certainly not doing a very good job on that. I mean, the whole way in which this problem has been handled um, in the government, starting from the president, but including much of the Congress, is bad. And just as a final notice, these people can't get their act together on the reauthorization of military force. I have never seen a government in so much disarray in my entire life. And it's the shame on everybody who's contributed to this ungodly mess. All right. On that note, thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.